This is Iron Sports, and we are honored today to have Bob Whitsett and on the show, former general manager of the uh, Seattle Supersonics, Portland Trailblazers, and Seattle Seahawks. And your career, Bob, has been absolutely tremendous. You have a book out called Game Changer, Changer Insider Story of Sonics Resurgence, the Trailblazers Turnaround, and the Deal that Saved the Seahawks. That's uh, just amazing life when you re- go through everything. And I can't wait for this book to come out. Usually I read the book before the show, but... Uh, it's uh, you've been involved in almost everything with football and basketball. The only general manager ever of football, of NFL team and NBA team. Well, you know things happen in, in strange ways, but uh, I was working for Paul Allen at the time. I was the president and general manager of the Trailblazers, and uh, a few years into that run, the Seattle Seahawks were in the process of moving to Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, to make a, a really long story short. Uh, we got involved in, in trying to save the team. I negotiated a deal with the current owner at the time, Ken Baring. It included an option for Paul to buy the team. It was contingent upon us building a new stadium and, and many other things. But uh, the good news is uh, uh, we were able to get the team, build the stadium. Uh, the Seahawks have had an amazing run since then in Seattle, and uh, everybody's quite happy. The The irony is, the iconic team, the longest sports team in Seattle, the Supersonics, left town, and I think it was just about 15 years to the day when the team announced it was moving to Oklahoma City. So uh, sports can be fluid, uh, you know, expect the unexpected, and uh, sometimes when you think something's going to happen, it won't, and sometimes when it looks gloomy, uh, the sun start, starts to shine again. So uh a lot of fun, a lot of excitement, a lot of, a lot of interesting things. Before we get it, we're going to talk about your background with the book, which I, I just cannot wait to read this book. But the one question that everybody asks me constantly is, I go to the restaurant and I get my bill and it takes me like five, ten minutes to get my bill of what I order. It seemed like every single deal on Friday night, the, the deadline was six o'clock Eastern time. By 6.15, everybody had signed, all the deals signed, how, or it wasn't really signed, but actually agreed to. How does everything happen so quickly? Like you're only supposed to start at six o'clock and suddenly by 6.30, uh, billions of dollars have been uh, uh, promised. Well, that's a great question, Ira. And uh, in law school, we, we learned uh, the definition of tampering and things things like that. But let's just say there's a uh, really fast start. I think uh, you're probably allowed to have conversations. You're not technically allowed to negotiate. But conversations could be things like, I would like to talk to you at uh, 6.01 uh, when free agency opens. And I'd like to tell you about the great weather we have in Southern <laughs> Florida and the beaches. And I'd like to tell you about our great roster. You know, so, uh, you know, I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm not going to point the finger, but there's sort of a, uh, you know, if you're kind of waiting to start when the, when the gun goes off, you've probably missed everybody else has probably run a lap already. So, um, there's just a, uh, you know, and that's why there's a, a few days before you can actually sign contracts. And you know, contrary to what everybody thinks, all these deals that are being announced, until the contracts are actually signed and approved by the NBA, uh, sides could back out of the deals. They don't because it would be bad for business. It would be bad for future negotiations. So uh, 
I think the league likes it a little bit because it gets them a lot of media attention at what would normally be kind of a slow NBA time of year. Yes. When you were in Sacramento, uh, the one thing I noticed I was, re- I was reading some about you is you we're down here in South Florida. We had this whole uh, naming rights deal for the stadium. The, uh, it's been named American Airlines Arena when it started, but now it's been now we're at the Kaseya Center. FTX was there for a few months, it seemed like. But you negotiated the first naming rights for arena when you named the Sacramento Arena the Arco Arena. I did. It was uh, I mean it was a long time ago, but. It really was groundbreaking because it was the first commercial sponsor on a, on, on a facility. And as you can imagine, not only do we have to convince somebody to put their name on it, which was very difficult, we had to work with the NBA. They would not allow us to put the, the logo on the basketball court because the, uh, the media providers, the networks, didn't want to give free advertising. The local newspapers wouldn't call it Arco Arena because <laughs> they thought they were getting free advertising. We, we had better success getting Arco Arena on the California State Highway signs, if you can imagine the politics in California. But eventually, the NBA uh, approved it with some limitations. Eventually, the Sacramento Bee and the other media outlets called it uh, by its name. And it really became the, the single biggest sponsorship the team had and all teams have. And uh, today, you have teams like... Uh, the Lakers and, and, and the Clippers, they're getting, you know, five, six, seven hundred million dollars for the naming rights uh, deal. So you can really see the growth and in, in the innovation. And that's one thing I like about the NBA. It's a very creative, innovative league. And if you can think of it, there's a good chance you could figure out a way to do it. <laughs> and that actually got your job at S- Seattle Supersonics or Sonics, as they, however you want to say it, is Barry Ackerley, who's the owner who owned all the billboards in that area, one of the largest billboard owners in the United States. And he said, wow, this is the best billboard is on a stadium. So you go to Seattle and your one of your first moves is to draft a high school player named Sean Kemp. Uh, talk about your decision to draft Sean Kemp, uh, uh, the rain man. Well, it was actually, I think, my third season. But, uh, you know, I've always felt, you know, I I do my homework. uh, I'm passionate. I really thought I knew what I was doing, and I still think I know what I'm doing. But one thing I learned from um, Red Auerbach, who back in the day was kind of the the godfather of of basketball and, you know, a great coach, and, and after that a great general manager, Red was not the greatest personnel guy. He made a lot of mistakes. But one thing I learned from Red was in the NBA, you've got to hit a home run. You've got to swing big. And when Red swung big and hit, he got players like Larry Bird as a junior eligible, or he swung a trade, uh, you know, what turned out to be Joe Barry Carroll for Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale, basically. Uh, he drafted a guy who was playing baseball in Toronto who said he would never go to the NBA, a guy named Danny Ainge. So all the sort of unconventional swing-for-the-fence deals that worked out for Red, they became cornerstones to championship teams. And when I saw Sean Kemp, um, you know, usually when kids are coming out of high school, they're pretty skinny and pretty raw, unless you get a LeBron James or, back in our day, a Sean Kemp. So I saw a pretty physically mature player, and I really said to myself, uh, this is the absolute combination of Dominique Wilkins and Charles Barkley, you know, the jumping ability and the the, the, the explosiveness of Dominique, yet the physical uh, 
close play of Barkley, et cetera. But the problem I had is there hadn't been any players who had come straight from high school to the pros since probably Moses Malone and, and some of those guys, and that had been 10 or 15 years, and nobody in Seattle knew who Sean Kemp was. There was no video. There was no college highlights. And most importantly, my owner didn't know who he was <laughs> and thought he wouldn't, he would, thought he wouldn't sell any tickets. And that was the, the, the hardest negotiation was to get the owner to give me the softest yes possible. And it wasn't even a yes. It was sort of a soft, I'm not going to say no, but I don't want to do it. And fortunate for me, like all, all deals, the player came in, Sean came in and, and became arguably one of the most popular players in the history of the Sonics in a literally a highlight film with, with Gary Payton and Sean uh, I drafted Gary the, the following year. I got the cornerstone pieces to a, a championship caliber team, and I really believe that's what you need to do in the NBA. You've got to get two really good players that you can build around to have any success to win the championship. And for our younger listeners that have it didn't see the team live, and certainly our older listeners who saw this amazing team in 92-93, they lost in the conference finals to Barkley four game in a seven-game series. Uh, 93-94, they had 63 wins, first in the league, and the upsets by the Nuggets in the first round, sort of like what the Heat did to the Bucks. And then, uh, then you left after 94, but then they had another 63 win, and then went to the NBA Finals, and uh, were down 3-0 to the Jordan, but took two straight games from Michael Jordan in the NBA Finals. So really one of the most most dominant teams I've ever seen in, in the history of basketball, and, and what that didn't win a title. No, I think well, actually, I think I had two of those. <laughs> I had that team, and then I think my 2000 team in Portland, uh, which uh, lost to Shaq and Kobe in Game Seven. We had a 13 point lead in the fourth quarter, and I don't want to get into conspiracy theory, and I, I didn't really go that far into this in the book because. Uh, you know, I got to give the Lakers credit, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in game seven against Kobe and Shaq. We're up, I think, 10 at halftime. Both teams have attempted 10 free throws. We're up, I think, uh, 13 in the fourth quarter. And by the end of the game, they've attempted 37 free throws. We've attempted 16. So somehow they got 21 more free throws when we were were tied with the free throws at halftime and we're leading throughout the whole game, including by 13 in the fourth quarter. So uh, that one sticks to me a little bit more than even the Sonics one with, with Barkley where they had uh, 28 more free throws than us. But in, in either case, those were two really, really good teams that could have won championships. They didn't. And I think uh, sometimes they need a little luck. But uh, as a general manager, your job is to build a team that has a chance to win it all for uh, a window of time, which might be three, four, or five years. So uh, both Seattle and Portland ended up with some really great teams that got very, very close. And then we we turned to Portland, and when you became the general manager there, you dealt with something that, that they're really looking at right now is that Clyde Drexler was the icon, was the was Mr. Portland, everything, and you traded Drexler uh, to the Rockets. So you made you actually are doing the move they're doing now in terms of trading someone like Dame Lillard, someone who had uh, had ties to the community and who had been drafted by the team and led the team to dominance. But you, but you made that decision to trade then. Talk about the thinking and sort of like com- to talk about the present day, what they're thinking about in terms of trading Dame Lillard. Yeah, it was it was deja vu for me. My my first season in Seattle, the last remaining player from the '79 championship team in Seattle 
a multi-time all-star, a pillar of the community, Jack Sigma. Literally, before I even got my uh, my briefcase unpacked in my office on day one, he asked to be traded because the Sonics were terrible and they had made the playoffs for a couple of years and he wanted a chance to win again. So I had to deal with that. It was a PR issue. It was a basketball issue. And I resolved it by getting Jack to one of the teams he wanted to go to, which was the Milwaukee Bucks. We got Alton Lister, a couple first-round picks, and started a an amazing rebuild. And even in the first season, uh, I took a team that, that hadn't made the playoffs, gutted it, and we got to the conference finals. So it worked out well for both sides. Then when I go to Portland, literally, uh, Paul Allen told me, before I even got there, he said, Clyde's going to be banging on you either for another another new deal, like he does every year, and there's no way I'm ever going to give him a new deal. That's what the owner told me. Uh, but he'll want to be traded, so it's your job to figure it out. So Clyde came in. He wanted to be traded. He actually wanted to go to uh, a bad team thinking he could squeeze more money out of them. And the one thing I sat down and talked to Clyde about was, I, th- I said, Clyde, I think you would be better served going to a good team to have a chance to win the championship because you got close in Portland. You've never won it. And when you're, when it's all said and done and your legacy is defined, nobody's going to care how much money you made. They're not going to care how many all-star games you played. The first question they're going to ask you is, did you win a championship? And so um, I came up with a few teams I thought made sense. And the only one I could get a reasonable deal on was with the uh, defending champion, Houston Rockets, with Akeem Olajuwon. And so I sent Clyde down there. And uh, he was part of the team that uh, won it, you know, on the, on the back, the, the back-to-back. And he also got an extension. So he, he ended up getting more money. He got his ring, and um, it allowed me in Portland to start the rebuild. But those are challenging because I traded the most popular and best player in the history of the franchise uh, in Portland. And Portland is a very savvy basketball community. They love their players. They love their team. And, you know, there was probably no package uh, in the NBA I could bring back that the community would say, hey, that's better than Clyde. So I think that's kind of what they're going to face now. Damon, Damian. Lillard is probably now the, the the best player ever to play in Portland, or or certainly he, Clyde, Bill Walton. You know, those are the three. And now to have to deal with that, at least there's air cover in that the player has asked to be traded. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult because you've got to get a great package back, and you've got to show the community that the package you're getting back is the foundation to something better. And uh, it's going to take a little skill. It's going to take a little savvy. It's going to take a little courage. Um, but I'm sure they'll figure something out. Did you get a lot of blowback from the community after you traded Clyde? And how how was he responded? I mean, did it go out that he asked for the trade? Or did you sort of said we're trading it? I just wanted to know in terms of how the pressure that came under you after you made a trade like that. Well, I got a lot of blowback before the Clyde thing even happened because I came from Seattle. Um, we had the best record in the league. We were better than the Trailblazers. There was a big rivalry there. So, you know, they were tuned up to hating the Sonics and hating Seattle. And then suddenly the captain of the the Seattle ship comes on board and it took them a while to, (laughs) you know, swallow that because they, they, you know, they, you know, when, when you're spending all your time competing, like if you're competing against another player who's really good and you, 
you, you learn to boo Reggie Miller or, or whomever it is, and suddenly he joins your team, you're, you're used to booing him, but then it doesn't take too long to realize, well, wait a minute, he's our guy now. So, uh, so yeah, I didn't take as much heat on the Clyde trade because Clyde wanted out and because I, I put him in with the defending champs. Had I sent him to a, a lottery team or a bad situation, I think the community would have felt like I did uh, Clyde a big disservice, and, and that would not have been right in their eyes. So uh, for me, it worked out really well. But you can't always just get the player where the player wants to go. You you know, there's a lot of, lot of factors. Uh, and first and foremost, uh, the GM's job is to do what's right and what's best for the franchise. So you, you've got to balance the franchise's uh, short and long-term goals with the player's desire. And in Dame's case, he can tell you where he wants to go, but you know, part of him getting $54 million a year for the next four years is he, he signed that contract knowing he could play at any of the 30 branch offices in, in the NBA. And, uh, <laughs> he's still going to be making $54 million. So just because a guy wants to go here or there doesn't mean that's where he's going to go. So you, you have to weigh everything and, um, see what the opportunities are. Another trailblazing move that you did at the Portland Trailblazers uh, was bringing in Arvidas Sabonis, whose son is playing for the Sacramento Kings, who just signed a tremendous extension for a couple hundred million dollars. But back in the days, in, in the late 90s, bringing a foreign player in was unusual, and now we've had the last three MVPs have been foreign. Uh, Jokic won the NBA Finals. So, so you were sort of a way, definitely trailblazing, bringing in Sabonis from Russia to play in the NBA. Well, really, for me, it was kind of a no-brainer. First thing I said to Paul Allen when I was thinking of taking the job was, you guys have had the draft rights to Sabonis for six or seven years, and you've had a really good team. You know, the 90, 91, 92, those teams were, were twice in the finals. Why didn't you bring them over? And he said, well, my GM and my, my coach didn't want them. I go, are you kidding me? I mean, how could you not want him on that team? So uh, first thing I did is I got on a plane. Well, not first thing, but early on, I jumped on a plane, went to Spain, watched him play, got to spend some time with him, see what he really was about at that moment. And I spent my first season committed to trying to get him to Portland, and I, I got him to come over uh, at the start of my second season. And he was there almost the entire time I was there and uh, really one of my favorite players. He... Obviously, he wasn't what he was pre-injury, but he still was a very effective player. 7-3, big, great passer, uh, solid, smart player. Um, you know, just somebody any team would want to have. And he was a consummate professional. And uh, it's funny, his son was always playing around in the practice facility. Now to see him be an all-star with Sacramento is, is really a pretty cool thing to see. It's... Uh, it's full circle, and I'm, I'm sure uh, Savas is really proud of him. And then it's it sort of full circle in terms of your time there in Portland and sort of what is Pat Riley is dealing with now is that when you put this great team together, we didn't talk about Jermaine O'Neal and Brian Grant and Rasheed Wallace, 
and David Stoudemire, you and Steve Smith. I mean, it's just so many talented players. You then add Scottie Pippen to this, so you brought in Scottie Pippen to the team. Now you felt like, okay, I have a team together, you bring a veteran. Talk about the thinking, maybe from the Heat's perspective, in terms of they have this team together, it's a veteran team, they're going to bring this superstar player who had who has you know had success throughout the league. Well, if you're if you're trying to make the parallel to the Heat trying to go get Lillard like the Blazers, we went out and uh, made a very complicated deal to get Scottie Pippen. And uh, Scottie did not want to come to Portland. He only wanted to go to Los Angeles, play for the Lakers, play for Phil. His wife only wanted to be in L.A. So I had multiple things. I, it was a very challenging salary cap deal to put together. It was very challenging to talk the player into uh, wanting to be in Portland, at least willing to be in Portland. And once I got him to the willing to be in Portland stage, um, I pounced on Houston pretty quick, and I, I, I pushed the deal fast, and I kind of gave them a short timeline. And if they didn't hit my timeline, uh, I'm out. And once I'm out, they're, they're leveraged and they're their market goes down dramatically. So it was a little bit of a, you know, the negotiation. You know, I have a chapter in my book only on negotiation. And every tip I talk about involves negotiating with an agent or another team or making a player trade. And I think the Pippen example might be one of the ones I used in the, the negotiation chapter. But Scotty came in. He did a fantastic job. He was a really good leader, really good player. Uh you know, great work ethic, great habits. And again, that team came so close to winning it all. I mean, it's, so, you know, some people call me on the anniversary of whenever uh, the Lakers started that run, and they they always tell me that's the best team ever to not win a championship. And I go, wow, do they give out trophies for that? <laughs> I mean, that's not, a, that's not a, a thing. I mean, it's a thing you're proud of, but it's a thing that hurts because when you get really close, it hurts. So I think with uh, the Heat, uh, it's hard to say. Obviously, they got really close last year. They got to the finals. But then the flip side is they barely made the playoffs. They were like uh, a few minutes away from not making it out of the play-in. And so that's a really different kind of perspective. Our team, we were winning in the mid-50s every year. So we were a solid top-tier team, no no this, that, or, or that, or no luck, no, no, everybody knew we were really good. Miami's a little different. They, they ended up really, really good, but they barely got in. So what are they? You know, that's a good question. What are they? And uh, so if they're, if they're trying to get that next piece to win it all uh, and to keep their foundation in, in play, um, they don't have a very deep roster. One thing I had, I, I built a very deep roster. So when I was able to make trades that took multiple players in, in salary cap nuance, I had players teams wanted. And that allowed me to be uh, a little bit more creative out there. Nowadays, it looks like everybody's just doing salary cap math. And they sign guys to really big contracts. And then a year later, they give another team draft picks to take the contract off their books. So... A year later, you're giving up your, your draft capital to get out of a mistake you made the year before, which to me is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen, but I see that happening all around the league. So so um, I don't know how desirable the, the roster is to, to other teams. That's going to be the challenge. But um, 
it's also challenging to trade a guy who's making $54 million a year with the new labor agreement and, you know, the the risk of getting into a second apron that not only is extremely punitive financially, but it's uh, very punitive from a basketball perspective relative to mid-level exceptions and draft picks and trade rules and, and things of that nature. So uh, Pat is very savvy. He's done it before. He's always looking to do it again. And if there's somebody in the league you should have confidence in trying to get it done, uh, he would be the guy. You know, one of the biggest challenges is when you look at when you're trading for a player and saying, okay, how's this player going to fit into our system? But it also is you have a, if you have a young player, and I, I'm talking about Tyler Hero, uh, there's a lot of people in Miami that are saying, well, this is what Tyler is. But remember, he led the league in free throw shooting last year at 94%. He's only 23 years old. Like, where is his, what's his ceiling? And, if, and I think that's the debate. You know, when you have your own players, talk about a little bit about valuing your own players that are young and how good they're going to be. And do I want to keep this great young player who's going to emerge into a superstar? Do I want to trade them where I think this is the best they're ever going to be? Well, that's a good question. I think, generally speaking, all teams overvalue their own players, uh, which is good. You you get a belief in them, a confidence in them. Nobody's ever won the championship with just young players. Uh, it's never happened. It probably never will happen. Now, you can have young players who are key pieces of a championship, but you've got to have some really good, strong veterans in there. I think also most people, you know, probably starting with the media and Everybody else, social media and fans alike, generally are only looking at the offensive end. They watch the ball go in the basket. And all the analytics you hear about through the media mostly are offensive analytics. So there are two ends to the court. There's systems. There's style of play. Uh, the Heat have, in my mind, one of, if not the best coach in the NBA and Eric Spolstra. So that's a real, real plus. But you have to know what you're trying to, to do, how you're trying to build it, what works for you. Uh, a, a player in one system may be really, really good, but not so good in another system. So uh, in projecting out how much better players are going to get, how much better are they going to get after you give them all the money, how is their work ethic going to continue on, what's their injury history, being the best free throw shooter in the league is not really a big deal. I would start. I, I would start with you know how many times are you getting to the line? Okay, you know, great, you can shoot ninety percent, but if you're only getting there four times a game, that's not a big deal. If you're getting there twelve times a, a game, little little bigger deal. And again, I'm not trying to minimize it. It's it's great that he's leading the league in free throw shooting, but uh, I would expect if any guard on my team. If they can't shoot 80% or above, they better be really, really special in some other area. But, uh, no, he's a, he's a nice young player. I think a lot of teams would love to have him. But um, I don't think he's going to be a, a swap for, for Lillard, if that's what you're asking. But, uh, but then again, maybe, you know, if you're in the go for it now, it's one thing. If you're in the I don't think we can quite get there now, I want to keep the young pieces, that's another thing. So, um, I don't want to pretend to be in somebody's, uh, you know, office figuring out what they're going to do. But each each organization has to figure out where they are, and more importantly, where they're going. And once they figure out where they're going, they got to figure out how to get there. And you know, you got to be a lot more creative. Teams got to get out there and do three team deals, four team deals. With the cap the way it is, it can't just be 
my contracts equal your contracts. Let's can we make a deal? It's got to start with the basketball deal. Does the basketball deal make sense? Is the basketball deal something we want to do? And if the answer is yes, then it's your job to figure out how can I make this happen. And that's where the uh, the creativity and the uh, and the think tank really comes into play. And I guess the question would be: Is Pat Riley and Joe Cronin, the general managers of the respective teams? What are they doing now? Are they making phone calls to agents? Are they calling each other? Are they calling the other teams? Like, I just like, I, you know, they're working today. <laughs> but I just was from thinking from a perspective of to get a deal like this done, how, like, how does this get done? Like, when they, when we finally get this announcement that it's going to be Lillard is traded to the Heat or Lillard trade the Sixers, like, all the phone calls that have to be made before that decision, before that announcement. Well, let's start with this. Lillard may not be traded. Okay. So let's, let's take the temperature down a little bit. Just because he asked for a trade doesn't mean he'll get traded. Harden asked for a trade doesn't mean he'll get traded, okay? So you got to start with that. So all the excitement may just turn out to be nothing but a, uh, an exercise where the phone bills get run up. <laughs> um, so that's one thing. Second thing is I don't think you need to call teams every 15 minutes and say I'm interested in Lillard, okay? They, those phone calls have been made. They know what teams might be interested, might not be interested. Uh, sometimes there's quick deals, and quick deals happen because maybe the draft hasn't happened and there's draft picks involved or the cap's going to go up in the new cap year. i got to do it in the old cap year. Uh, sometimes uh, deals take a long time because maybe I have to clear cap space. Maybe I have to make decisions on other players. Maybe I have to decide if I can get other players and if I can, I'm not interested in that player anymore. Uh, sometimes deals take longer because you need to let the team, who in this case might be trading a player, find out that the market's not as red hot as they thought, and suddenly their their expectations come down. I mean, look at last last year, Danny Ainge did an amazing job. He traded a guy that not too many people wanted for basically five first-round picks. And Rudy a few Gobert. Years earlier, a few years earlier, Sam Presti traded uh, Paul George for five first-round picks, an NBA starter, and then a guy who's turned out to be first-team All-Pro. Okay? So these are some pretty nice packages. So if I'm Portland and they're getting five first-round picks for Gobert, or a first-team All-Pro guy and five picks and Gallinari for, for Paul George, they probably have a pretty high uh, bar in terms of what they're looking for for their guy. Now, maybe they get that, or maybe that expectation comes down a little bit as time goes on. So it's to answer your question, Ira, there's no right, wrong, this is how you do it. There's a lot of um, science. There's a lot of art. There's a lot of feel. There's a lot of understanding the other organizations, how they make decisions, when they make decisions, why they make decisions. Are they media-driven? Are they cash-driven? Are they cap-driven? Are they coach-driven? Uh, you know, So you really need to understand the nuance of every team and how it works. Who really will make a deal versus... There's a lot of general managers who like to say, oh, I was in on the Lillard trade. I called. <laughs> I was in on that. And if I'm an owner, I go, big deal. 
of course you should make a call to see if, there, if there's anything we could do. You get judged by what you actually do, not the things you thought about doing. Okay? <laughs> or, or, oh, I wanted, I thought I was going to draft Steph Curry. I, w- I, w- I, w- I liked him too. Oh, I just missed him by one spot. Really? If you knew he was going to be that good and you liked him that much, you couldn't move up one spot? You know, these guys all have uh, crazy narratives. But at the end of the day, all that really matters is, what did you get done? Show me the body of work, what you got done or what you didn't get done. And again, so maybe the best thing is to make the trade. Maybe the best thing is to not make the trade. Uh, Time will tell. But those are the kinds of things I think the the GMs are thinking about and and working on. And, um, And then it's a little bit of poker. If you could get a couple teams going and, and, and sort of get the bidding up, uh, but then it's a timing thing. If you wait too long, you might lose all opportunities. If you push too hard, you might push people away. Um, you know, where are we going to be in three, four years from now under this new labor deal? And again, I, I've read it. It's about 700 pages. I've read it pretty thoroughly and I've, you know, written a bunch of notes. I know what it's going to look like. So I've already factored that in. I, and I assume. Well, I will. I will promise you. Most of the GMs in the league aren't even going to read the agreement. You know, they're not even going to know. There might be a cap guy in the office who reads it, but they really, they really need to understand where this is going and, and make sure their owners on board with where, where they want to go. So, um, who knows? I mean, they, you know, they could be doing a deal as we speak right now, or we could be having the same conversation after Labor Day. And uh, that, that's that's the exciting part of it all. Bob, this is, we're talking to Bob Whitson, uh, author of Game Changer. This is you were teaching a master class in uh, NBA uh, negotiation. It's the book is called Game Changer: Insider Stories of Sonics Resurgent, the Trailblazers Turnaround, and the Deal That Saved the Seahawks. And before you go, I just wanted to ask you one final question in terms of football because you also were the general manager of the Seahawks, and talk a little bit about the being a general manager of a basketball team and a football team, and what are the similarities and differences between manager being the, you're the, as the only person to have done that that job pretty amazing well you could start with uh the similarities are both are are sports both are teams both are trying to win championships uh both are driven by salary caps uh the nba salary cap is truly a hard salary cap meaning uh it prevents you from doing a lot of things uh the nfl is different in that you basically have one game a week so you have, uh, you know, we had 16 games when I was in it. Now there's 17. So a game here or a game there during the season really has a big impact uh, on, on whether or not you may or may not make the playoffs. In the NBA, there's 82 games. So honestly, you could have uh, a two, three, four-week span where you're not doing very well, and you still have plenty of time to right the ship. Uh, the NBA I love because you get one one player or certainly two and you can go from the bottom of the league to the top of the league. I mean, it really has a dramatic impact on, on where you are as a franchise. In the NFL, you really have to build a, a, a solid team in all three phases. You can have the best quarterback in the league and be the worst team. If you don't have a line, if you don't have receivers, if you don't have all the, the some kind of a defense – and in football, you know you're going to get injuries every week and, and lose players, so you have to have depth. So the draft is probably a little more important in football because those late-round picks 
do have to come in and contribute. The culture in football is a little different because it's a, it's, it's, it's a violent sport. There's a lot of collision. If you're not doing your job, I could get hurt. <laughs> okay, if, if you didn't block your guy, I might get my head taken off. Uh, in basketball, you know, one guy can take over a game. So it, it's hard to say, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the NBA is a little bit more like rock stars and the NFL might be a little bit more like a, a symphony that you need all the, all the pieces working properly to get the right music. Where the rock star, you might just have uh, one guitarist take off on a riff, and that's the whole song. It's fantastic. So I mean, there's so it's it's hard to explain until you've done it. But it's uh, they're both exciting. I love them both. Uh, there are similarities, but there's also quite a few differences. Wow, I love that analogy between a symphony and a, and a rock group. But Bob, I know you're super busy on this holiday weekend. Thank you so much for coming on on Iron Sports. I really appreciate everyone get this book because we didn't even touch on uh, the whole idea about you helped the Seattle get the stadium, Loom Stadium, all those other things. I cannot wait for this book to come out. I think in October you can pre-order on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, Bob, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Ira.